0: My major pain has has been invisible.
1: The mobility aid makes it better. It gives
0: me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Christina about undergoing surgery for a cavernous malformation on the fourth ventricle of her brain and subsequently developing HOD, hypertrophic olivary degeneration. According to WebMD, Cerebral cavernous malformations, or CCMs, are irregular bundles of tiny blood vessels, or capillaries, in the brain. The vessels are stretched out more than usual. Their abnormal shape and thinner walls can lead them to leak or alter blood flow, which may cause health problems. Christina's cavernous malformation was located adjacent to her brain stem. Her doctors suggested that she monitor this lesion. Since surgery is risky, they didn't want to jump straight into doing the procedure to remove it. But in 2020, an MRI showed that this lesion was filling up with blood, creating a risk of this blood getting into Christina's spinal fluid, which can have serious repercussions. So she went forward with the surgery, but Christina's neurosurgeon did not prepare her at all for the recovery she would face afterwards. She was only told that she might need some physical therapy after the surgery, but she ended up needing to relearn basic functions, like how to walk again, how to shower or use the restroom by herself. When questioning her neurologist, she was told that, yes, this is a well-known thing, that when they operate on your cerebellum, you may have to relearn these basic functions, but her neurosurgeon never told her that. Six or seven weeks after her surgery, she started having intense pain in her eye, between the eyeball and the socket, and her vision started looking bouncy. She was sent in for another MRI and eventually diagnosed with hypertrophic olivary degeneration. This condition affects the inferior olivary nuclei, an olive-shaped structure on either side of the brainstem. One or both sides can be affected. The olivary nuclei first expands and then starts to shrink, causing a wide array of symptoms, many of which are very similar to MS, multiple sclerosis. When Christina was first diagnosed, she was told that this condition was exceedingly rare, and doctors don't usually see it in their clinics, and it should just resolve on its own and go away. But as Christina started digging into some research about this disease, and connecting with other patients online, she realized that this was far from the truth. And for many patients, this was a lifelong condition. In fact, the research about this disease is severely lacking. That's why Christina founded Hoda, the Hypertrophic Olivary Degeneration Association, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping patients find community and support while raising funds for further research. This conversation with Christina today is deeply personal. She did such an incredible job walking us through the feelings of anxiety and depression after her diagnosis with HOD, and how at first she felt like she wouldn't have a future, but she found new purpose in founding her organization, and a newer, deeper sense of meaning that affected all aspects of her life. It is such a special conversation, and once again, I'm just absolutely thrilled that I was able to record this and bring this to you on the podcast. There is some discussion in this episode about Christina's feelings soon after her diagnosis that she may not want to continue living. And I'm so grateful that she brought this up and was willing to talk about it. And it makes for a really fascinating and important discussion. But whenever something like this comes up on the show, I always like to remind you that there are resources out there if you are in a moment of crisis and need to reach out to somebody. In the United States, it's as easy as dialing 988 on your phone. This is the new Suicide and Crisis Lifeline number. Just like you can dial 911 in an emergency if you are having a mental health crisis, you can dial 988 and there are people standing by waiting to talk to you to help. Like Christina will mention in this episode, she discovered new purpose in life after her diagnosis, proving once again that you never know what could be right around the corner after going through something traumatic. So if you are in need, don't forget about that new number, 988. I got some great feedback about last week's episode that I wanted to share, and this comes in the form of a brand new five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This is from ebook obsession titled Alexis Klein Interview. I really enjoyed your conversation with Alexis. You are both so well informed and passionate about helping others going through similar situations. I've read Alexis' book and found it to be uplifting without shying away from the difficult questions and feelings. Your show was a great insight into the author and her inspirations. Thank you so much to eBook Obsession for uh, for your feedback and also for leaving us this positive review on Apple Podcasts because that goes a long way towards helping other people find the show. The more ratings and reviews we have, the more we will show up in search results, and basically the more credibility the show will have. (laughs) So it's very, very appreciated. Thank you so much. If you're enjoying this podcast, a great way to show your support is by signing up for monthly financial contributions through Patreon. Subscriptions start at just $2 per month. Our Patreon community is not only supporting the creation of this show, but they also receive monthly bonus episodes, and our February episode will be coming out very soon, There's also special recognition and gifts for our different tiers of support. Speaking of, extra special thank you to our Patreon producers supporting this show at our top tier of $25 per month, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. You can learn more or sign up to support this show at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. You can find information on all the great ways to support this show on our website majorpainpodcast.com slash support, including getting paid to participate in research studies and surveys through Rare Patient Voice, sending us a one-time donation through PayPal, leaving us positive ratings and reviews, or just sharing the show with a friend. Everything is super appreciated. I'm so proud of what we're building here with the podcast, and your listenership and support is a massive part of making this work and keeping us going into the future. I'll remind you as always that my guest and I are not medical professionals. Please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our amazing conversation with Christina about her cavernous malformation surgery and hypertrophic olivary degeneration. Christina, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me, Jesse. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to chat. Whenever I see someone online who is a rare disease advocate for a disease that I've never heard of, I always jump on it. (laughs) And uh, I'm, I'm always excited to learn about diseases I've never covered on the podcast. And this is another one I've just never heard of. So I'm really excited to learn today. But before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit. So Christina, why don't you tell us about yourself?
1: sure um my name is Christina Coates. I am a native of Arizona. I am apparently people are really excited about natives from Arizona because there's just very few of us most of us, most people are like with snowbirds but um I was born here. I lived a very dull and boring life up until about five years ago um I am a an accountant by education. I worked for a Heavy machinery company in their credit department managing a 50 to 80 million dollar portfolio. So it was all numbers and spreadsheets for me for many, many years. And now not so much. Um, I am married. I have two dogs and two cats, and I love them. And I have two daughters. So two, I guess, is a very important number. (laughs) I'm just me. I'm quirky. I have a dry sense of humor. I've always kind of been the quiet, funny, smart girl that doesn't say anything in the meetings. So here (laughs) I am.
0: And I'm assuming that what changed five years ago is this rare disease we're about to talk about. So let's get into that. Christina, what is your major pain?
1: Well, Jesse, I have a few major pains, but right now it's just hypertrophic olivary degeneration, mm. which is a very big word. Yes. So we're just going to call it HOD.
0: HOD, hypertrophic olivary degeneration.
1: <laughs> so I think the science community really just doesn't like people who have brain diseases because all of the names of the different brain diseases are crazy.
0: Yeah, that's that's so unfair. I've never thought about that before.
1: It really is. And it's, I mean, usually it comes with some cognition issues. So when you're trying to explain to people, you get a little tongue-tied.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, on the heels of that, I have to ask you what it is and please take your time.
1: Okay. We're going to take our time because it didn't start with HOD. It actually started with chronic migraines. Okay. So, um, my first migraine that I had was at age 19 and it was one that kind of knocked me out pretty hard. I was very nauseous. You know, it just, it, the pain was so bad. I just remember I was at my mom's house and I was crying cause it hurt so bad. And she's like, Oh honey, let me get you something to eat. Well, she got me Kentucky fried chicken and then I vomited every <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's not a good migraine kind of food to eat.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, KFC not so, good migraine food. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, I mean that just no, I wouldn't recommend that so after that i didn't really have any migraines for many years um when i turned 40 i like to joke that all the wheels fall off when you're 40 and they certainly did for me because i was getting migraines all of the sudden out of nowhere every single day Hmm. and i'm the person that would go to work and get up and make myself go through a migraine work through migraine dealing with spreadsheets and math as an accountant. So you can imagine it was just a whole new level of hell, Mm. Um, but I did it. I didn't want to let anybody down. Um, But finally, after about a month of migraines, I decided there's something going on with my brain. So I went and saw my GP, which I'm very fortunate that most of the doctors in my life at this stage of my life um, actually believe me when I tell them there's something not right Mm. with with me. And so when you go to your doctor and say, um, I think my brain is broken. Usually they'll get you like, um, yeah, I think it is go see a psychiatrist, (laughs) but, um, not in my case. My doctor believed me, especially because of the migraines. Um, and so she sent me to get an MRI. And when the results from the MRI came back, you know, I, I wasn't really nervous to get the MRI or anything, but, they, the doctor's office left me a voicemail that they found an abnormality on my brain um, and that I probably need to find a neurologist to look at it. So here's the first thing don't leave a voicemail that there's an <laughs> abnormality on someone's brain. you know that's really it's triggering it's it's tough it's hard to deal with. So I did have some conversations with my doctor and her staff about how that's inappropriate. But I just happened to stumble across the best neurologist in the world. And um, I don't regret that at all. But he ha- he looked at my MRI while I was sitting there. Um, and me and my husband. And he just kept looking at the pictures. And he's like, what the heck is that? What is that? Oh, I don't no. know what that is. That's weird. What is?" That? Again, it's a little unnerving. Yeah. Um, but I passed all my neurology tests.
0: I'm just a shocked that your doctor would say that. <laughs>
1: I know he's I've been with him now for and I've referred so many people to him and I just absolutely love that he did that because it made me feel like okay good I'm sitting across from another human Mm. and not someone who's just going to dismiss me which as we all know that our medical community could do just a lot better Mm. anywho uh, so he concluded that it was a cavernous malformation on my brain I'm on the fourth ventricle of my brain. So, most people have never seen their brain. I've seen my brain so much. It's like, I should. I actually made a travel mug with pictures of my brain from MRIs because I know my <laughs> brains so much. Well. But, um, so, anywho, um, the, the cavernous malformation also is known as an angioma or a vascular. I don't even know, but it has many, many names. Um, they sent me to a neurosurgeon then. So a neurosurgeon is the person who's going to be watching the cavernous malformation, um, which was on my fourth ventricle. The fourth ventricle is adjacent to your brainstem on your cerebellum. And the fourth ventricle controls the fluid from your brain to your spine. So it controls some pretty important stuff. that's how your body sends signals to your brain and your brain responds to your body from those signals so it's kind of a special area but my neurosurgeon was extraordinarily confident that this would be easy to get to because it was more surface level um but he didn't want to operate at that time he noted that the the lesion a cavernous malformation is not a tumor it's a lesion um but just ask the insurance company they'll tell you Um, but the lesion had blood before now a cavernous malformation is kind of, it looks kind of like a raspberry, but it's just, it's a cluster of blood vessels. That's not normal. So blood runs through there and they are, they tend to ooze blood out. And one thing that you do not want to get in your cerebral, cerebral spinal fluid is blood, Mm. um, that can paralyze you. It can cause ischemic strokes. It can cause all kinds of bad things. So it had blood before I had no idea it was even there. I had to get an MRI six months out from the first MRI. And then after that, every single year, I had to get an MRI. Well, I would get super rebellious and like, look, I'm not going to have brain surgery. I don't care what anyone says. Nobody is going to be in my brain. So I'm not going to get these stupid MRIs. If I die, I die. I don't care. And you can imagine my husband and my daughters are like, what? <laughs> what do you? Mean? No, you got it. To- I mean, I literally had to have my... Children tell me to take care of myself, so I would go. And every year, nope, there's nothing. It's not doing anything. It's just the still the same old guy in there. Nothing's happening. So we'll see in a year. Um, and then in 2020, in August, I had another MRI, and it looked like the lesion was filling up with blood. So once it fills up with blood, it's it could burst. It could bleed again. It could hemorrhage. It could cause problems. So that year, the neurosurgeon actually wanted to see me. And that also was when COVID was raging. So we met via telehealth. And he told me, I think it's time to start thinking about surgery. This is where we're at. We really don't want it to bleed again, because it's like playing a Russian roulette with your brain. You just don't know you could have strokes for the rest of your life. You can be paralyzed, it can kill you, or we can take it out. Um, so, okay. Um And do you have any questions about brain surgery? I'm like, yeah, am I going to die? And well, you know, there's always a chance that you can die, but, you know, this is pretty easy. We can get it, get to it real simple. It's on the surface. So we'd probably just cut your neck and then drill a hole in your skull and then just go in take it out and then just replace the hole. Um, So yeah, no, it'll be fine. I said, okay, well, let me think about this um, and talk with my family. So they gave me some time to think about it. Of course, you can't force someone to get brain surgery, thankfully. Um, But my daughter tells me the story that she just thinks it's so funny. Our youngest daughter, she was whiny, I think, at the time. And um, she says, Mom, I just remember you were standing in the kitchen. You're like, so how do you you think it would look if I had a trap door in my neck? Should I let them install a trap door to my brain or not?
0: And I was like,
1: (laughs) I don't... To this day, I don't remember having that conversation, but I respect that because I think it's pretty funny. (laughs) So moving on along, my family and I decided it would be better to not play Russian roulette and just go ahead and have the surgery since it seemed pretty low risk. Um, My surgery, thanks to COVID, was canceled three times. So, you know, getting hyped up for brain surgery and like three different times while you're working and trying to train somebody on how to do your job. Um, say, thinking okay i'm going for brain surgery well by the third the second time it canceled by the third time i rescheduled i was like okay this just it's i don't need to work myself up it's not going to happen they're going to call me like one of the times they called me like the day before i was supposed to have surgery and like sorry hospital's full can't do it because it's considered an elective surgery which i i mean we all kind of get a kick out of brain surgery is elective okay sure so 2021 was the surgery. So that means it was just like six months that I had to wait, knowing this thing was thinking about going off at any minute. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people in the cavernous malformation community describe it as a ticking time bomb in your brain. Um, I don't particularly care for that because all it does is just make people real scared. And you cannot be thinking like that and surviving every day. You just have to go on with your life, you know? So anyways, I had the surgery. Um, it was COVID. So nobody could come to the hospital. My husband could come in and visit with me for a few hours. They made an exception because it's brain surgery. Um, and the surgery went off fine. They resected the entire angioma from my brain's, well, cerebellum, fourth ventricle um and after that they i was in the hospital a couple days i think i was in the icu for a day and then regular hospital for two or three days i remember it was during the super bowl cuz my husband came and i made him bring me a blizzard from dairy queen and i took like a bite of it and i was like I'm, no this is nope no Um, one thing, another thing they didn't tell me is when they operate in that area, you wake up vomiting and you vomit for some people are sick for weeks. Mm. I was, I was only actively vomiting for like a full 24 hours, um, which was horrible because then I couldn't be trusted with any kind of food. So hospital diet, hospital, bland diet, and like just water. Mm, it wasn't great. So anyways, um, they sent me home with a walker and said, okay, well, we're going to have a therapist come to your house and make sure that you're okay. Make sure your surroundings are okay. And then you're going to have to do some physical therapy at some point. Mind you, none of this stuff was discussed before surgery. They're telling me that's while well, I'm hooked up to drugs. And I was like, whatever, that's fine. I was not told that I'd have to learn how to walk again. Now, me learning how to walk again was not as um, dramatic as somebody maybe who had a spinal injury, um, that kind of walking, but I definitely needed a gait belt. Somebody had to hold on to me. Um, I could only walk with a walker for the first while. I was not, once I got home, I was not allowed, once I was sitting on a couch or in bed, I was not allowed to move without um, somebody by me because I couldn't stand. Um, I had to learn how to use the restroom by myself. It was a while before I could do that. I couldn't shower by myself for a long time. I had to sit in a chair. None of this stuff was discussed before Mm. surgery. I had no idea. So we really came in unprepared, um, which is unfortunate. It's very simple to just tell people, hey, man, it's going to be kind of a drag after surgery, and you're going to have to relearn how to do it.
0: Was there some sort of disconnect with the doctor not telling you these things? I mean, these are important pieces of inf- information to have, at least to know. I mean, I'm sure the doctor can't know exactly what your recovery is going to look like, but they can sort of run you through a list of the risks. You know, whenever I've had a surgery, they've, they've sat me down and said, this is everything that we've seen happen after this surgery to other people. Um, do you have any idea why that didn't happen?
1: I don't um my pre-op paperwork said that I will need someone with me for the first 24 hours. <laughs> After that I should be fine. Um when I spoke to my neurologist, not the neurosurgeon, but my neurologist, they were like uh yeah, when they operate on your cerebellum, you're going to be dizzy. You have to learn how to do all that stuff all over again. It's not a simple wow. It's not simple. So I don't know that there was a disconnect. I think, I mean, I can't, I can't describe or explain why that happened to me. I was very lucky to know some, a friend that had, I have two friends that had brain surgery. So they were kind of like, yeah, no, you're, you're going to have some problems afterwards. It's going to be rough.
0: That's so disturbing because if you had known, if you had known this information beforehand, you probably still would have gone through with the surgery because you kind of had to. But maybe not with these doctors, because if they're not going to tell yeah. you, if they're not going to tell you this crucial information, then what are they going to miss? You know, so if, if it were me and I'd had this surgery and I had this whole recovery, I wasn't even warned I was going to need. I would re- be retroactively thinking like, I don't trust these doctors and I just let them operate on my brain. I'd be I'd be horrified.
1: Yeah. 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 It caused a lot of resentment on my part for quite some time after the surgery mm. I was very angry that I wasn't told. I felt like, almost like I was duped a little bit, yeah. just not duped. Like we're going to sell you a bill of goods or whatever like that. It's just like, I, I could have been prepared. I could have like warned my 20 year old child that her mom is going to be really messed up afterwards.
0: Yeah. And when you, you got to yeah. prep yourself emotionally and mentally yeah. to, to relearn to walk. To have to do that without knowing yeah. it was going to happen, you know, it's already such a challenge. But to su- to spring it on you is is so unfair. I mean, I I'm getting a little heated just thinking about this. Like I've never, I've never heard anything like that before. That's really upsetting.
1: Well, this is one of the reasons why it's important to me to join different support groups so I can warn other people I, if their doctors aren't telling them, which they're not always telling them. It's not just me. I mean, at least we can help them as survivors of brain surgery. You know, it's, yeah. It, I'm the, maybe the only person in the world that went into brain surgery going, it's no big deal.
0: It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you no. know, like when I, when I had testicular cancer, my doctors were giving me that, you know, this is no big deal. This is the oh. safest cancer surgery to have. And they, you know, it's not that it was no big deal, but they were kind of right about um, setting my expectations up like it's gonna be a couple weeks where you're gonna be in pain and um, and then you'll be able to go back to work and th- for the most part they were they set me up for success you know like sometimes doctors tell patients things like oh this is gonna be great it's no big deal to kind of set them in a place where their mind will be calm you know but in your situation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like the exact opposite is true where it's like a lie of omission to maybe try to keep you calm pre-surgery but that's going to make your challenges post-surgery so much worse to not go into it with your eyes open knowing what to expect
1: it really did make me cocky in a place that I had no right to be cocky yeah (laughs) Yeah. so you know it 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 all adds to the story for sure it's because it the story is really one of overcoming a lot of obstacles um maybe a couple weeks after surgery I started doing physical therapy um to try and help me regain balance because Again, cerebellum helps to control balance. So being dizzy all the time is no bueno, Mm. but I know that this is the life of this. This is my life now. So anyways, I did the physical therapy. I graduated. I was doing really great. Went back to work within six weeks of brain surgery Mm. um, and was excelling, still doing really good. They did not remove my intelligence or anything like that. They put in a little bit more funny humor, I think, because this—that's how I've dealt with all this. Um, but then after after I got back to work in six weeks, I my my eye started hurting really bad, um, and not so much the eyeball, but like between the socket and the eyeball, it was just super achy, and then it looked like everything was bouncing and. Everything was kind of my vision was wrong, so I called my neurosurgeon's office and they said, You need to go see your ophthalmologist, um, and have them look at your optic nerve. So she did, so I did, I followed that, I did that. My optic nerve looked great, but somehow I developed nystagmus in my left eye and I have double vision, hmm. so that's kind of weird. They immediately Um, These are things that also occur with people who are diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So they immediately kind of took a turn of, well, maybe this is MS. Let's send you for another MRI. So they did. Um, My insurance company does not love me because I am a frequent flyer in the tube. I'm getting lots of brain MRIs all the time. That would have been like my fourth that year, I think. So they looked at my brain and they found a lesion on my medulla spinal cord that was not there before. It wasn't there during brain surgery. It just kind of showed up and it's only been like six or seven weeks since brain surgery. And so I have this lesion. Um, it looked like a demyelinating lesion, which again would point to multiple sclerosis. So I then was ordered a spinal tap and another M- another MRI of my brain and cervical and thoracic spine to look for other MS lesions because that's where they like to hang out. So everything came back beautifully. There's nothing wrong with me. Okay, so that's when I got a little bit pissed off and I sent all of my information up to the Mayo Clinic. So like I said, I'm in Arizona, so I'm very lucky that I have a Mayo Clinic not very far from me. Um, So Mayo accepted my case as a second opinion um, I did more tests, like autoimmune tests, they tested how fast my optic nerve processes information, they glued all this crap to my head, it was weird. Um, and the doctor told me, it's good news, it's not MS. Okay, awesome, well, but we do think it's hypertrophic olivary degeneration. but that's not a death sentence he says and this was on the telephone by the way again with the phone calls um at least it wasn't a voicemail it was a telephone call um and I said okay well what can I expect he says honestly we don't have very many cases of this so we don't know what to expect but it should just resolve on its own and go away um well okay so I started Googling it. There was nothing. Hmm. There was a few medical papers, but I don't know if anyone's listening to this has ever tried to read a medical paper. Mm-hmm. It's rough. <laughs> it's even for those of us that are not cognitively a little bit, you know, under par at this point. So I found a support group on Facebook. I happened to be on Facebook because at the time I was volunteering for the Angioma Alliance. And that's the only reason I was on Facebook, because I really don't care for social media all that much. However, I found a group. I asked the group of people. There's maybe a 100 people, 115, 120 people in the group. Hey, what should I expect? And resoundingly, everyone comes back with, we don't know. Everyone's different. And I said, is this just going to go away? No, spoiler alert, this doesn't go away. You're, this is your best friend for life now. So, now we're into my major pain, which is hypertrophic olivary degeneration. Very mm-hmm. exciting HOD. Sorry, I said I would just say that. <laughs> no.
0: Why so, Why did the doctor tell you it should just resolve on its own if, if it seems like that's not true for the people who live with it?
1: Okay. First of all, it's generally diagnosed by a radiologist. So, they see it on your brain. They put it in the report. I have talked to so many people that say, I just read my report and saw it there. Doctor never even mentioned it hmm. because they all just assume it's going to go away. And that's why That's why I created a patient organization to start raising money to fund research yeah. into why did this happen? Who does it happen to? What's going on? Some people with HOD um, have ataxia as well, which is like an acquired ataxia. So they need wheelchairs walkers their physical therapy some people uh, like um, myoclonus so they can't swallow or speak right some people have aphasia pretty bad i have a mild form of aphasia um but i have full body spasticity from this nobody else in the group does just me okay so I get to be on muscle relaxers 24 seven to control it. Otherwise I can't, well, I can't walk. I can't function. It's terrible
0: yeah. to be honest. So it, it sounds like this disease is characterized by lesions um, in the brain. Is there a specific place where these lesions happen? Um, and what, what differentiates it from, from MS?
1: Yes. Yeah, so there are, um, this affects what's called the inferior olivary nuclei. In your brain, there's in your brainstem. There's two of them. There's one on the left side and one on the right side. So it can the lesion can attack one side or both sides. Mine is one-sided right now. Although the last time I visited my neurologist, I requested to not have another MRI because I've acquired nystagmus now in my other eye, and I'm worried that now both of my olives are under attack. The the symptoms are very similar to multiple sclerosis, but they're not necessarily demyelinating lesions. What mm-hmm. happens is the olive first will expand like a balloon um, and then it shrinks or it atrophies. That's the de- degeneration part. So we're still trying to figure out, okay, does this degenerate forever? So this, the structure completely is gone or does it stop after a few years? And you're kind of stuck at that level of disability. Like, we don't really know these things, which listen, it's like, um, you mentioned you had a cancer diagnosis. It's like getting a cancer diagnosis, but in the year 1650, <laughs> wow. there's no hope for you. Right. Like nobody knows anything and doctors, they'll just say things like, well, no, it don't, don't go away. It's fine. It's not a death sentence. But it is, this disease is actually, it's classified as a movement disorder. So it's similar to Parkinson's, but Parkinson's is a different part of the brain, but that's where we're most commonly aligned with is Parkinson's.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like it's really different from patient to patient. So really hard to wrap your brain around what's happening for you individually.
1: Absolutely. And of course, with any When you have any kind of chronic illness anything new that happens you're like is that the disease or is that aging or is that being a woman is that menopause you know you just don't know and nobody knows yeah it's it's frustrating is what it is
0: yeah so what we really need is more research you know the the medical community can be so incredible when they put their mind to something you know i mean the 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 way that they attack certain diseases is just mind-boggling and the 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 amount that they can learn about something just within our own lifetime you know i'm currently being um evaluated for for mcas mast cell activation syndrome and my life has completely changed since starting the medication for it and it's just like how did they figure this out you know how did they figure out that if you take chromal and sodium and h1 and h2 blockers that it can calm down your mast cells and maybe you can regain functionality i'm like how did they figure that out and and i this is you know, that is a relatively new diagnosis, I think first applied in the 80s, and there's still so much that doctors don't know about it, but they know enough to help patients. Uh, and it's just, it's kind of mind-blowing to me, um, you know, just how much they know and how much they've learned in that short amount of time. But like still, certain doctors won't even acknowledge that it exists and others will. So it sounds like you're in a place where this diagnosis is, is way less known Um, Way less research has been done about it, and you're able to solve the mystery of what is this thing. You have a name to put to it, but that doesn't necessarily give you a good path forward. That sounds extremely frustrating.
1: It is. um, It can definitely, and I will say trigger warning, it can put you in some very dark spaces. Yeah. Um, There was a, a time... Shortly after the diagnosis, when I just had a discussion with my husband and I said, listen, as long as you're alive, I'll I'll stay alive. But after that, I'm done. I'm not living anymore. I don't want to know what the story ends like. And that's kind of shocking for people to hear. But at the same time, it's uh, what what would you do if you had something like this and you don't know how your life is going to be? Am I going to just aspirate and die of pneumonia? in my lungs like it's it's not a pretty ending but we don't again we don't know we just don't know and um these rare diseases it's kind of incumbent upon the patients somehow to raise money to hire people to research you
0: know if
1: it's not interesting it's not sexy nobody cares nobody cares and like for me I I can function as a normal person. I can fool anybody. If you saw me walking down the street, you would have no idea there's anything wrong with me. Um, So when I identify as a disabled woman, I get some pushback. Mm. (laughs) I'm sure you can relate. It's like you look great. There's nothing wrong with you.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the whole invisible illness thing where people just don't take other people's words for what's happening in their own body like you've never lived in my body you don't know what i'm experiencing um you didn't go through brain surgery and relearn to walk and then get another diagnosis a few weeks later you know that's that that's your reality and it it is so so upsetting when other people just kind of discount your reality and just refuse to believe it for no reason
1: yeah yeah and i i actually there was a time when I didn't know at the time I thought I was having a heart attack, but really, I was just I had acquired panic attacks after all of this. So I went to see a cardiologist to check out my heart, and he just was like, I don't even know why you're here. Mm. <laughs> like So when I started explaining to him in detail the brain surgery that I went through, that um, he started to take me a little more seriously, like, hey, man, I'm not just some dumbass. I'm here.' Because it felt like I was having a heart attack. Well, so that was actually an, a, a panic attack, my first one. So it was pretty awful. Um, but I'm on, uh, going back to un- unaliving myself. Um, I did admit that to my GP and my neurologist and everybody. I was very open about it and I asked for help and they put me on some medication to kind of pull me through and help me to see that, hey, there is a life to live. And with that help, I actually did see a life to live and I did see purpose in my life. And that purpose was to create a patient organization, um, which is it's Hoda, H-O-D-A. So hypertrophic olivary degeneration association. That is a mouthful. Take a breath before you try to say it because you will run out of breath eventually trying to say that. So we call it Hoda. um, And what we do is we've We're working with the support group that I had found on Facebook. We work with them um, and we try, I go to other groups. Like I'm just about to go to a meningioma group and ask if they have anyone who's been diagnosed with HOD after their meningioma is a brain tumor. So after a meningioma diagnosis, we do have some folks that come from there too, Um, So I work with other groups to try and find our patient population. We have a fantastic medical board that we love, um, just doctors that have written papers and are interested in HOD. Um, So I don't feel so alone anymore. And is it a little selfish? Yes, it is a lot selfish. But I'm not the person, and I've never been the person that's just going to sit around and wait for somebody to come up with a solution to a problem. I'm going to find that solution. I'm not going to let this thing get me. I'm just not.
0: Wow. I love that. That's so cool. I I love hearing people finding this new purpose after something changes in their health. It happened to me. That's why this show exists. And it can be, you know, so powerful to rediscover something about your life um, or just discover something completely new that you never knew was going to bring you joy that you'd find passion for. You know, I'm sure as, as a young child, you didn't imagine you'd be founding Hoda. <laughs> no. Um, but, but here you are, you know, fighting for people like you to have better care and to to find better ways to manage this disease. I think that's incredible. I really commend you for that. I think that's such a powerful message.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It is It is more work than I ever imagined. Mm. But... As my husband, right now I'm on uh, short term disability from my job. Not sure if I'll ever be able to go back to working at regular gig. But my husband's like, you are using your brain so much more than you ever did during work. And look at the things that you're learning and the lives that we're changing. And just you know, it's it's re- it's rewarding. It's not like working for the man. It's not collecting dollars for the man. It's every single penny that we collect we know is going to help a family or a person with hod you know we know it's going to help yeah and that's very rewarding yeah and it just keeps me going for
0: sure. that's so cool i'm i'm so impressed that's really really amazing thank you how has this journey impacted your your family i know that living with chronic illness or disability of any kind you know as the patient, we are often very focused on what's happening in our bodies, how to get a handle on it. Uh, But then for the people who love us, the people around us, there is all these emotions and, um, you know, this whirlwind of things happening to them as well, just through through loving the patient. So, how have you navigated that?
1: It took me a while to get my act together. And once I did, I recognized that both my husband and my daughter stopped taking care of their own needs they completely stopped going to the doctor just discounting anything that was going on with them because well it's not what mom's going through it's not what chris is going through you know it's i had to kind of get a hold of myself and then encourage them to start taking care of themselves because without them i can't survive I mean i at this point i can but (laughs) you know you know what i mean it's like Mm -hmm. just because i have something doesn't discount that there's something going on with you so let's all just take care of each other so my immediate family kind of just they fell off the rails for themselves they were keeping just a happy face on around me and not telling me anything that might distress me at all um and that's just not who I am at all I I'm a problem solver and that's what I want to do that's I'm going to help take care of my family Mm -hmm. but you know while at the same time recognizing my own limits and honoring myself at the same time it's it's kind of been a fun little dance
0: yeah yeah it's it's tricky for sure I mean for me I've had to spend a lot of time thinking about how I'm acting because I kind of don't necessarily think about that when I'm really sick. Um, It's like, what are the subtextual, you know, body language signals that I'm sending out into the world? How are other people interpreting those? Am I being, am I being a jerk and not realizing it while I'm just kind of Mm -hmm. suffering internally? And that's something that I've had to really, you know, recognize that I was doing a lot of things that I had no idea I was doing, you know, and, and saying things or acting certain ways, that I would think were rude if I were external. Um, But I can't be external in that moment because my body is, you know, kind of uh, inside of this whirlwind of whatever was happening. So it's really hard to kind of externalize yourself and recognize that you need these loved ones and you want them in your life. And, And even though you have so much happening physically, you do need to make sure that you are kind of tending to them emotionally as well
1: yeah, I agree. I will also note that um having something as disturbing as technically one rare brain disease and one really rare brain disease, it really kind of shows you who is there for you mm. or it, what relationships are actually real and which ones kind of aren't. You know, I lost probably eighty percent, eighty to eighty five percent of my people, but I gained new people. But I lost people that I thought were friends and, I mean, family members, close family members that just, it's too much. It's too hard for them to see this.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's such a common thing, too. It's so upsetting. It's just so frustrating, you know? Yeah. And part of it is is two ways, I think. I've thought about this a lot because, you know, I definitely lost people, especially the first time that I got sick. And I think a a big part of it is like people not wanting to see someone that they knew as healthy being sick because it scares them and makes them uncomfortable and they don't want to deal with it. And then the other half of it for me is like, I don't want to be looked at like a freak for being sick by these people that used to look at me normally. So, you know, I've recognized at this point that there is a part of me that pulled back from some of those relationships as well, that it wasn't just, you know oh, this person thinks I'm sick and doesn't want to be around me anymore. It wasn't that simple. It was like the give and take of this emotional bond is now sort of fractured because I am sick. And sometimes those things can be worked through, but sometimes they can't. In the moment when your health is at a low point, it, it's just too hard. <laughs> it's too yeah, hard to try to agreed. fix all of these relationships with people that just don't understand. Like you just want people to get it. You know, you want people to see you yeah. and understand what you're going through, try to treat you as normally as possible and just get it without you having to explain it. And that's another thing I've learned yeah. over the years is that sometimes I do have to explain it to my friends and, and loved ones and people who are close to me. And that sometimes the best way for them to get it is for me to tell them.
1: I agree with that and also sometimes when you explain it you realize that oh people just don't want to know you know yeah. it is scary because normal people quote unquote normal people when they see scary things happen to other quote unquote normal people um it's kind of jarring it's like oh no if this can happen to her it can happen to me and happen to anybody you know and that that can be jarring to somebody's uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just their own existence. Like it's, maybe it's not going to be okay, good. I'm going to retire when I'm this age and I'm going to go rent an RV and travel around the world, do whatever, you know, maybe those plans aren't going to make it like I, for me, the one thing that I would love to carry to this community is that the most important thing that you can do is except that the life you had before is not going to be the life you have after so i honor the person i was before hod that person it was so strong that she is carrying me through this now mm. um but i'm a different person than than the person i was before i would never have even thought about going on a podcast and talking like putting all my laundry out for everyone to to judge you know and now. Mm. I write pieces, very, very raw pieces for, um, I've been in Brain and Life magazine, that's from the American Academy of Neurology. I've been in different publications. I put blogs out, just are super raw, authentic, emotional pieces that I would never have considered doing before this. But because that person before me was so strong, or before Chris 2.0 was so strong, I can lean on... Chris 1.0. Hmm. You know, this is just a new, I just respond. It's just a new generation of me.
0: Yeah. that This is something that I think is really important is that for a lot of people, when chronic illness strikes or or something changes in your body, all you can think is like, I want to go back to how it was. I want my old body back. I've, I've said that so many times. And I'm, I'm realizing now that, that that wasn't necessarily the right goal to have for me. The right goal was, you know, I'm going to evolve into what I will become and I'm going to try to find the best way to do that. And it's going to be different than what I used to be. But to to try to go back to how you used to be completely discounts all of the incredible lessons that you've learned through so much uh, pain and suffering. You know, it really shapes who you are. It changes you. It It alters your sense of empathy for other people. And you build strength that you never knew you were going to need so to go back to who you used to be you'd be throwing away these things that you that were so hard fought but you know like i right before we started recording i was telling you about how you know my health has improved dramatically recently um with my new medication and i am feeling like a, a piece of my old self come back but it's reintegrating with who i became while i was you know basically bedbound for six years and I'm becoming someone new on the other side and it's different. You know, I, I will never go back to how I used to be. Um, you know, I'm still, yeah. my health is way better. It's never going to be as, you know, what it was before, but then everything that's happened to me in the meantime, it's not, you know, it's not like it didn't happen. It's not like I didn't go through all those things. And those things have informed my, the way that I look at the world and I'm becoming something new so, but I think that this is true of everyone, you know. Like people try mm-hmm. to hold on to their youth. This is such a common trope, you know. Go through a midlife crisis, buy a sports car, <laughs> um, trying to trying to hold on to that feeling of youth instead of recognizing that everybody who lives long enough to do so will become an adult, and then if you're lucky enough to to grow into old age, you know, you eventually yeah. become old and that's just everyone's journey and instead of trying to like throw throw that journey away and reclaim what you used to have it, there's it's never too late to you know hold on to things to to reintegrate things that you valued that you no longer have as a part of your life but it will be as a new person in the future it's not going to be who you used to be it's going to be developing to, into someone new and i think that um with chronic illness and it, it can be so much more pronounced because There can be physical changes that have to be reintegrated, but, you know, Christina 1 and Christina 2, versions 1 and 2, version 2 grew out of version 1, and all of that, you still have all that strength, and then more so, because of everything that you've been through, that builds strength, and you're doing something now that is so much more valuable to the community um, than, you know... It sounds like you were doing, you know, valuable work before but now you're really giving it back to the community and fighting for something that can make actual change in people's lives and version 1 might not have known how to do that. So version 2 already has, you know, benefits and knowledge and experience and empathy that version 1 didn't have. So nothing like nothing is linear, you know, with 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 these sorts of illnesses.
1: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's Version one was great, but version one was so busy trying to prove to everybody how valuable I was that version two, I don't care what you think about me. You can think whatever you want. I have been through hell and back and I'm still trying to come back. So I don't, I'm not going to try and convince anyone that I'm worth your time. If you don't want to be a part of my life, that's fine. It's fine. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to chase after anybody. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to do any of that because it just doesn't matter. And I wish I realized that before, but I didn't, and that's okay. You know, this these diseases have taught me that there's so much in life that doesn't, it just doesn't matter. I'm Mm. not going to fight for, you know, I'm not, I don't need to be, have a perfect house and a perfect looking picture for the Christmas. I don't need that anymore. I just don't. And I'm grateful for it, honestly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You learn to appreciate things differently and- in some ways, you learn how to find moments. For me, I've learned how to find moments of happiness more intensely, and find happiness in simpler things. It used to be, you know, if I'm not a rich and famous rock star, I failed, and that's like, right. that's that's a real recipe for having an unhappy life. <laughs> because the thing is, is, if if I were to ever achieve that, then I would need to hold on to it so tightly that if it ever went away, I'd be miserable. Um, and then I'd only have moments of elation inside of, you know, being on stage or whatever. And I used to kind of be that way. Whereas now I've learned how to, you know, have simpler things bring me joy, really, you know, commit to the relationships that really matter to me in a way that I never knew how to. And, you know, find work that is more stable and, and bring, brings me joy and satisfaction, but also helps a community in a way that, you know, I used to be just so much more selfish and just want, like, yeah. you know, fame and glory for myself. And I've really, I'm really realizing, especially in the last couple of weeks, like, wow, I've really grown out of that desire to be, you know, for, like, fortune and glory, to quote Indiana yeah. Jones. <laughs> um, and it's, it's I, I'm very, I'm, like, very interested in, in those changes that I'm feeling. And I'm, like, surprising myself with that recently.
1: Yeah, it's honestly, it's who knew that life could be so beautiful, even when you're broken, you know, and it's almost like you have to be broken to realize that, wow, you know, just having a conversation with a stranger is amazing. Mm. It fulfills me. It makes my heart sing, you know, just just meeting new people and relating on different areas or just sitting with someone. And yeah, I don't know what you're going through at all, but it sounds like it sucks. And I'm here and just talk and it's okay to just let them talk and not have to be like well yeah you know uh back when I had xyz I don't I can't even think of anything shingles off the top of my head is well, I'm thinking about <laughs> I had a friend that just had shingles And <laughs> that sounds horrible but um yeah it's just it's so important there's so many steps in this process that we're not told about right so the whole grieving the life that you thought you were going to have is the most important thing I, I, I've done because mm. that helped me to let go and honor the person I was before, the things that I wanted before. And it helps you to really change. You just have to be able to accept that I can't get that back and come to a point where I don't want it back. Yeah, I don't want it. What did it ever do for me? Yeah, If it doesn't serve me, I don't want it.
0: I love it, yeah. Yeah, I used to really be someone who's like, I'm going to chase my dreams no matter what. And eventually I came to the Mm -hmm. point of like, what if I started chasing my reality, you know? (laughs) What if I started looking at what is real right now and where do I want to go and how can I take the next step towards that? Instead of like, I this thing that's like, I don't even know how to even approach doing, that's just like this pie in the sky dream, that's like, okay, well, I want that to be real and I'm just going to only accept that versus everything else without taking any real steps or, or learning how to do it, you know, (laughs) like, you know, I was like playing shows and recording music and that, that's like some of the Mm -hmm. best times of my life. Um, and I'm always like, this is going to lead to something huge. I just don't know what it is. I need to let the universe guide me, you know, and now, right now I really feel like, you know, taking practical steps towards, um, just, Making tomorrow a little bit better than today, every day, you know, always trying to just be a little happier in the next day and make a little progress on on the things that I'm working on Um, and finding joy in success and learning how to um, weather failure without being destroyed by it. I'm just like so much more stable and so much happier living inside of that mindset.
1: Yeah. I used to be so, so, so wrapped up in fear around failing. And now I look at it as like, I want to fail because failure is part of the process. It's learning. I mean, if what are you if you never fail?
0: Mm. Who wants
1: to know that person? (laughs) My best stories come from failure.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, if you could, if you could send yourself back in time and Talk to yourself five years ago, right before this whole maelstrom opens up. With everything that you've learned, if you could send a message back in time to yourself, what would it be?
1: Oh, boy. I mean, first of all, I wouldn't have listened. (laughs) I already know that about myself because I knew everything about everything at the time. Just a little smart aleck I was. Um, Definitely that I think I would tell myself open your mind open your heart so many people have so many beautiful words of wisdom to share it's all going to be okay just listen to other people just listen just listen awesome and to yourself you know we all have wisdom we all have little bits and pieces that fall out i know (laughs) i i not to i always veer off topic my apologies it's part of my brain disease anywho um I wrote a piece once, talking about the doctor that said this isn't a life sentence. I said, "No, it's not a life sentence, or not a death sentence. It's a life sentence. This is not a death sentence. This is a life sentence." It just came out of me. I didn't see it as a word of wisdom, and that has been quoted back to me so many times by people in my community. And I, like, oh, okay, well, it's just a thing. But then I listen to you know podcasts, and just I just catch these little pieces of wisdom, and it's I would never do that before. I would just like have the podcast on just running just to check the box that I listened to the podcast. Mm -hmm. Like who does that? And now, now I can just be in the moment, listen, pick up those pieces of wisdom. And wow, there's so much out there.
0: Mm. Wow. And what would you tell yourself? Oh man. uh, You could go backwards. Yeah. Somebody asked me this question. I'm trying to remember what I said last time. I think it was along the lines of uh, learning how to appreciate things in the moment. Um, well, I don't have to say the same thing. <laughs> um, no, you don't.
1: You can always just say something different.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is the second time that someone has turned this back around and, and asked me this question. And yeah, I mean, the way, I'm, the way I'm feeling today, I feel like what I'd tell myself is a lot about what we just described about, you know, stop trying to regain your old self and, and just have some interest and some curiosity about who it is that you are going to become. And if you follow, follow your instincts, follow your heart, believe in yourself, and keep fighting for yourself, and eventually you'll become someone that you might even like better than before. Um, and yeah, there's so much about yourself that will surprise you if you keep fighting. And that's something that I'm like really feeling recently, you know? Um,
1: yeah, that's really beautiful.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's, been, it's been really good for me living through chronic illness doing this podcast uh these things have been so good for me and there's been so many times where i wished over everything that it would just go away and wish that i'd never had to have dealt with it you know screaming to myself in my own mind about how unfair it is that i have to live through this but but then i reflect on the ways that it's changed me for the better and i know that If I had not gone through it, the person that I was becoming before is not who I would want to be. And I didn't even know it, you know? So,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's fascinating stuff. You know, it's so interesting. That's why I, I just love talking to people about this. I mean, this has been an incredible conversation today. I, you've really blown me away with, you know, sharing your story and just, just talking about the mindset of, of living through something like this is it's so incredible because it's, it's uh, there's a commonality of experience there, no matter what disease you have, um, there's a commonality of experience of learning yourself, pushing through, fighting for yourself, coming out the other side different and in some ways better. Um, and yeah. it's a, it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to learn, but it's really valuable. So, you know, in this moment, I'm grateful for it. Which sounds crazy.
1: <laughs> Doesn't Honestly, because most mornings I wake up, I'm like, I don't wish this away anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't wish it away. I'm not mad about it. I have met the most amazing people because of this that I'd never even know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, Christina, incredible job today. Please tell us where we can find you online. Um, if people would like to donate to Hoda please tell us where to go and um you know any social media you'd like to share anything like that
1: absolutely so you can find Hoda on the internet at www.hodasoc so like hodasoc.org we have a donate button there we are a 501c3 so if you're in the United States donations are tax deductible and I hate that I have to say that but you know that used to drive my old me, like, okay, yes, I'll donate to you. Um, we're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we're all at, at HODASOC. So at H-O-D-A-S-S-O-C. And I apologize. I never realized how hard it would be with that handle to to express or to say, it's at HODASOC. Nobody knows it doesn't make any sense. But I was <laughs> in the moment, I was like, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to make it Hoda Soch, Hoda, like Hoda Cod P. everybody's going to know it, you know, and that made sense to me at the time. But yeah. now it's a little bit hard. When people ask where to find us. I'm on Facebook. Personally, I'm, uh, I think I'm Chris Coates, C-O-A-T-E-S. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. Come find me. Um, love to be friends. Love to hear your story. I am all about this community. Thank you for having me on, truly, so I can spread the good word about HOD. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm. I'm so. I'm just so impressed by this interview. Thank you so much for sharing your story, coming on the show, um, and for sharing your organization. I'm thrilled to amplify that message on this platform. If you have the resources to donate towards HOD re- research, this is a great way to do it. Run by someone who is. Living with this disease and fighting for your own community. So in- incredible work that you're doing. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Honestly, Jesse, it's been my privilege. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast, artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Pain podcast.